Our loving God, we are have been touched by your spirit already this morning as we welcomed Barry and welcomed Isla into this church family. Come, touch us once again. Move us with your Holy Spirit as we come to consider what it is that you want to say to us this morning. Let us find something this morning that will change us, that will move us, that will inspire us with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so quick straw poll, um, and, and you're allowed to look at how other people are voting. This is not a silent, uh, a silent vote. This is not a, a, a blind vote. Uh, hands up who takes photos on a regular basis. Photos of your dinner, photos of lovely sunsets. Hands up who's lying, because you don't want to know what your Instagram says. Uh, put your hand up if you use your phone to take those photos. Pretty much the same number of people. There's about 90% of people take photos here. Uh, put your hand up if you, um, if you use a digital camera currently. So maybe a quarter, a quarter of people. Hands up if you've ever used a film camera, one where you load the stuff in and, and, and things. Okay, so that's quite, quite a few people. Quite a lot of people have used a film camera. Um, put your hand up if you use a film camera now. Not one person. I thought there might be one or two. Not one person uses a film camera now. Hold some of that in your head as we explore this morning. Uh, when he died age 77 in 1932, George Eastman was one of the richest men in the world. The, the company that he founded, Eastman Kodak, which he founded in 1892, was at that point one of the largest companies in the world. Kodak, Eastman Kodak was the first company to, uh, to produce cameras for the public, cameras that, they, that you could uh, use conveniently. And their, uh, their slogan was, as convenient as the pencil, you press the button, we do the rest. George Eastman's vision and driving cause was this. In a time when photography was for professionals, where photography was almost exclusively the, the domain of professionals, where the equipment that they used was dangerous, the chemicals were dangerous, the equipment was heavy and big and really difficult to transport. George Eastman wanted to simplify all of that and he wanted to bring photography to the public. And so his breakthrough was when he invented, or when, when his company invented, a celluloid that replaced big heavy plates that used to be used for photography. And so this celluloid, or film, was what was used to record photos. It was cheaper, it was easier to use, it was much uh, more helpful way of storing them, and you could transport it wherever you wanted to go because it was a lot lighter. George Eastman was driven and a visionary and was obsessed with finding new ways to allow normal people to be able to take photos of their normal lives. In 1935, he produced the first color film for the public and he also invented the slide projector with this cur curved thing on the top so that you could very conveniently bore all of your friends to death with all of your holiday slides. Hands up anybody that's done that. <laughs> there we go, there we go, there we go. 
There was a further development in, uh, in the company now called Kodak. We dropped the Eastman a bit at some point. There was another development. There was another development that happened in the research and development department of Kodak. A guy called Gareth Lloyd, who was a supervisor in that department, gave a kind of project to one of his young staff members, 25-year-old graduate called Stephen Sasson. And what Stephen Sasson's assignment was to do was to attempt to build an electronic camera. And he succeeded, and his camera was given the US patent number 4131919, the first ever digital camera. If Eastman and Kodak was all about helping photography become more convenient to the general public, then this was the next logical step, to invent something that was even easier. But there was a problem. There was a problem with it. Digital cameras and digital photography directly challenged how Kodak made their money. Kodak took income from making the cameras, making the film, making the flashes, making the machines that you use to process the images and making all of the chemicals that, uh, that made the photos get printed. They produced everything. And so to embrace the digital revolution, to embrace this new type of, uh, of camera, to advance George Eastman's vision for digital for or for for um, for making photography more convenient and um, for the masses kodak would have would have to change their entire business model they would have to completely change their business model they had to project they would have to project themselves into the future and make a sizable change to their vision and their company there's a writer called Steve, uh, called simon sinek and he calls what Kodak needed to do, he calls this, this, uh, this thing that he needed to do, he calls it existential flexibility, which is a really uh, big worded way of saying they just needed to make a big change. Simon Sinek describes existential flexibility as the capacity of an organization to initiate extreme disruption to their strategic course in order to more effectively advance their just cause. In more simple terms, it means making a really big change to do the thing that you are passionate about. And in doing that, in making a really big change, is one way of what we call playing, and what we've learned about in the last couple of weeks, of playing the infinite game. Now you're going to have to wait a little while while I tell you the end of the story about what happened to Kodak and Stephen Sasson. Nobody dies, by the way, it's not that kind of end of the story, just the end of what, uh, what happened, and whether Kodak played the infinite game to, uh, uh, to advance that just cause. But first of all, what on earth is the infinite game and what does this have to do with the church? We're sitting in church, why are you talking about Kodak and cameras and all those kinds of things? Well. In 1986, a man called Dr. James Kars, who is the emeritus for three weeks, I have not been able to say that word, emeritus professor of history and literature of religion at the New York University, wrote a book called Finite and Infinite Games, A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility. 
And in this book, he made a profound observation about the way the world works. His premise or his theory is that if you have two people coming together to do something, then you have an activity, which he calls a game. And he says there are two types of games in the world. There are finite games and there are infinite games. Now, a finite game, uh, Kars says, is a game that has known players, has fixed rules, has an agreed upon objective, and that objective is reached by the end of the game, and then there's a winner at the end of the game. However, infinite games are different. So, so a finite game is like rugby and football and tiddlywinks and all of those kinds of things. Infinite games are different. An infinite game is made up of known and unknown players. There are no agreed on rules, there are no time scales, there's no finish line, and there's no end to the game. And therefore there is no winning an infinite game. There is no such thing as winning in an infinite game. In an infinite game, the purpose of the game is not to win, but to perpetuate the game, to keep the game going. We play infinite games all around us. Games that have no winners and losers and no finish lines. For example, there is no such thing as coming first in marriage or friendship or parenting. These are infinite games. We can achieve things within education. We can work towards objectives. We can pass exams, but nobody is declared the winner of education. Even when a marriage or a relationship breaks down, nobody wins or loses in that marriage. They're just no longer players in the game of marriage. And ultimately, when we die, no one is going to be declared the winner of life. Now, we play finite and infinite games all the time. We play finite games, they're fine and they're fun. We play infinite games and they're part of our life. There is nothing remotely wrong with either of them. The issue is knowing what game we're playing. If we know what game we're in, then we can play with the right mindset. And so the issue is that too often we play infinite games with a finite mindset. So for example, if you play the infinite game of education with a finite mindset, then you will try and compete with everybody else to be the best, whatever the best actually means. Everyone else is seen as competition, and so you won't enjoy just learning and education for the sake of it, for the betterment of yourself. If you try and play the infinite game of life with a finite mindset, then you'll tread on everybody else. You'll not make friendships. You'll, it'll all be about how, how you can be better than other people. The church, one of the issues with the church, the church is an infinite game. The infinite game of faith is what the church does. But, the, but too often the problem is that the church plays the infinite game of faith with a finite mindset. We spend too much time thinking about finite things, buildings, organizational finances, whether the church is meeting my individual needs. However, we should be more focused on the infinite things of our faith in God and communicating and living out the transforming infinite message of the gospel. And we've seen the results of what that is this morning. Now, Simon Sinek has also written on this idea of the infinite game. And he has said that there are five practices that organizations can use to help them get into an infinite mindset. 
And so these are advancing a just cause, building trusting teams, studying your worthy rivals, preparing for existential flexibility, and demonstrating a courage to lead. Now, I'm not going to look at all of those this morning. We looked at advancing a just cause last week, and today we're going to think a little bit about this big phrase of existential flexibility, which sounds really grand, but it's just really a way of saying making big changes. Now, just cause, just to catch you up, a just cause, uh, as defined by Simon Sinek, is a specific vision of a future state that doesn't yet exist, a future state so appealing that people are willing to make sacrifices in order to help advance towards that vision. For, um, for George Eastman and Kodak, his just cause was to find better and better ways to help the public capture their own memories. That was his just cause. So the digital camera seemed a good way of advancing that just cause. But to embrace the digital revolution meant huge changes for his company. It would mean huge changes to how his company operated and how it made money. It would require what Simon Sinek describes as initiating, initiating extreme disruption to their strategic course in order to more effectively advance their just cause. To perform existential flex, sometimes we call it a pivot. Sometimes when it happens quickly, it's a pivot. We go this way, we turn to go that way. Now, making big changes is nothing new. People and companies have, over the centuries, made big changes, and the church is not immune to making big changes. The Reformation that happened in the 15th century is one example of existential flex. The Second Vatican Council that happened uh, with the Roman Catholic Church in the 1960s is another example of existential flex. Big changes that organizations make to renew themselves. The charismatic renewal movement of a few years ago in the church is another example of existential flex. And we also find at the very beginning of the church, way, way back when the church first began, another example of existential flex. So a man called Luke, who wrote a book about the spread of Christianity, and he called the book The Acts of the Apostles. And in the book, he, he records something totally weird that happens to a man called Peter, who was a leader of the church. And as a result of this kind of weird thing that happens, Peter completely changes the direction of the church and the way they were heading. And Moira is going to come up and read that for us just now. The reading today is from Acts chapter 11, reading from verse 1 to 18. Peter explains his actions. The apostles and the believers throughout the, the Judea heard that the Gentiles has also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, he, this, sorry, uh, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet 
being let down from heaven by four corners. And it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right from these men who had been sent to one of Genesis stopped at the house when I was, where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation of going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us he had seen an angel appear in the house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on to them, and as he had come, as at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thanks be to God for the reading of his holy word. Amen. So it's a pretty weird story, I have to admit. It's a kind of weird thing that happened uh, to Peter. So what um, the background of the story is that Peter was, uh, was going to visit some Italian friends and stay with them and share food with them. And so he's had this, he's had this time with his friends and now he's come back to his church in Jerusalem and he's been questioned by some of the people who are in his church about who he visited, why he visited them, and, 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 and crucially, why he shared food with them. Now, the questioning group in the church are a group of new Christians in the Jerusalem church who are wanting to hold on to some of the traditions of Judaism. They're wanting to hold on to some of the traditions that they had previously in their Jewish faith. And especially, they're wanting to hold on to the practice of circumcision and, uh, and a thing to do with purity rites and the kinds of foods that you can eat. So when we talk about kosher foods, that's that kind of thing. And basically, the group thinks that, that people need to become a Jew first, they need to become Jewish first, and then become a Christian. So you need to go through all of the Jewish stuff first, and then become a Christian. And they're questioning why Peter, who is a Jew by tradition, went to spend time and eat with people who are not Jewish and potentially eat food that's non-kosher. And they also want to know why he is baptizing them into the Christian faith without insisting that they do all the Jewish things first. And Peter tells them about this weird dream that he had. 
And it's a credit to these folks that they actually listen to them, because if anybody's ever explained their dreams to you, generally, if you're like me, you kind of zone out, um, because you don't quite get what their dreams are about. Anyway, um, what Peter explains is that he thinks that this dream that he had is God's way of saying to him that you don't need to follow all of these Jewish traditions saying that people who are not Jewish don't need to go through the Jewish thing in order to become a Christian. And people who are not Jewish are called Gentiles. So the Gentiles, they wanted the Gentiles to become Jewish to then become a Christian. What Peter is saying is that he felt that God was, was saying through this dream that there are no barriers to becoming a Christian. There are no barriers to having a relationship with God now. You don't have to go through all of those traditions, you don't have to go through circumcision, and you don't have to uh, have all of these purity laws, and you don't have to not eat certain things. And this was a massive change to how the church thought, and how these Christians thought. It was a massive change for there to not be any barriers, not be any, uh, any notion of outsiders to our relationship with God. And by standing up for this, by specifically explaining this through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Peter performed a pivot, an existential flex. Peter triggered an extreme disruption so that the cause of faith and a relationship with God with no barriers, with no outsiders, could be more effectively advanced. You didn't have to be Jewish anymore, and that was huge. He said, Peter said, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you didn't need to follow the traditions of Judaism to become a Christian. And this was a massive change in the early church. Now, there always comes times in an organization's history where something major happens and we have to, we have the choice to change. Sometimes it might be a slow change in culture, and sometimes it might be an abrupt change that we have to react to, that we have to react to. But being prepared for that change and being clear about our just cause, what our purpose is, then helps us to make some of those decisions. So for example, we have just gone through a massive change in our world. We've gone through a period of great disruption and the church performed an existential flex. The church performed a pivot. In March 2020, it's a known story now, March 2020, we had the COVID pandemic, the COVID pandemic started, and organizations and churches were closed. We couldn't meet, we couldn't uh, come to worship, and we couldn't meet for anything. And in that moment, we had a choice. We can either not meet and not do anything, um, and wait until the pandemic was over, or we could make a dramatic change to how we operated. And a lot of people actually assumed that we just wouldn't do anything. I had a lot of people say to me in the early days, so what are you doing with your time? And I was saying, I'm doing a lot of stuff, which I'll tell you about. Our just cause, if our just cause in Ellen Parish Church is to imagine a world where everyone in our parish and our area is inspired, nurtured, and transformed by the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, then not meeting together for worship was a huge change. And so what we did to advance that just cause 
was to move our worship and our fellowship from meeting together to being online. We'd never done this before. We'd never put services online before. Our congregation had never experienced that before. You had never experienced church online only before. But in order to advance our just cause of nurturing and inspiring our community with the, faith, with, with, uh, with the life of Jesus, then it was the best thing that we could do. And lots of churches did this. We could have probably chosen to be more radical, but this was the path that we chose. Now, the church hasn't always been good at changing. The church has not always been good at, um, at doing these kind of flex things. Let me give you another example. Um, and, and this is the conversation that we had yesterday. When you talk about the decline of the Church of Scotland, and, it, and there is a very well-documented decline in the Church of Scotland, when you talk about it, often we talk about um, sports on Sundays, shops opening on Sundays, parents having to work full-time, and the fact that they no longer teach Christianity in the schools. And part of that was a conversation that, uh, that Anne and I had yesterday. And so you've been involved in those conversations. I've been involved in those conversations. You've heard the stories, and you've probably been part of those discussions. And I think about this quite a lot. Now I'm going to make one point. It's not the job of education to disciple our children, so um, so we don't. So that's one argument uh, to put out of the window. Christianity is part of the curriculum, and as a former teacher, um, I can say that I taught Christianity, and it is part of the curriculum. The problem, though, that's just inside. The problem is that when shops opened on Sundays, when there were sports on Sundays, and all of those changes happened. The church didn't do anything about it. The church did not work out new ways of advancing our just cause in the light of changing cultural patterns. We just stood around in car parks and moaned about it. You see, no matter how, how, art, how we articulate our just cause, our just cause is never about worshipping at 11 o'clock or 10 a.m. or 10.30 on a Sunday morning. It was never about keeping... Uh, keeping one space. Often when people cite that, they say, well, it's about, it's about making the Lord's Day holy. Well, actually, the Sabbath uh, uh, rule was about spending time with God, about having time off. It wasn't rigid to one part of the week. That's an old way of looking at stuff. Jesus never said that it had to be Sunday, and he didn't say it had to be Sunday morning. <coughs> Simon Sinek says, the responsibility of the church is not to get people in the pews, the responsibility of the church is to spread the gospel. So why didn't we change our worship times? Why didn't we set up our own sports activities? Why didn't we spend some time thinking about the changes that we could make to spread the gospel? Why didn't we ruthlessly hold on, uh, ruthlessly hold on to any changes that we could make to help advance our just cause? Well, I think the reason for that, I think the reason we didn't do any of that is because we didn't want to because we liked the way it was. We didn't want the disruption. We didn't want the change. We didn't want that size of change. And the result is that the church is now less engaged with society, less relevant, more marginalized, and more estranged from society because we refused to find new and innovative ways to spread the gospel that required us to change. Now, it sounds like I'm criticizing the past, which to a certain extent I am, but I'm not only criticizing the past. 
I currently worry a lot about whether we have the courage to change now what we need to do to make sure that the church is still here in 20 years' time. When I read this chapter in, uh, in Simon Sinek's book, I think that my, my brow was more furrowed than it normally is. I think, that I, I think I thought this is a really hard thing to try and work out. I'm not saying that it's easy to make those big changes. It takes huge courage and creativity to make those changes. But some of the questions that go through my head are things like, well, to what extent do we need to completely change our worship style to more effectively spread the gospel? How do our current systems inhibit our ability to reach out to our community? Where do we need to invest and change now so that we can see sustained growth in our church in 10 years' time? And I'm not talking about money growth. I'm talking about growth in faith. And how can we make sure that those in our church community are cared for in the most loving way? What kind of changes do we need to make in order to make sure that that happens? These are the kinds of things that occupy my head and occupy my mind. And they're not rhetorical questions. I actually am looking for some of the answers to that. And I would, do, I would be delighted to talk to anybody um, about any of that. I'm happy to listen to anyone about ways that we can do that. I spend a good amount of my time thinking about how we can project the church forward into the future, and I wonder what kind of changes we can make in order to advance our just cause. Which brings me back to Kodak and Stephen Sasson. I said that I would come back and tell you the end of the story. Stephen Sasson, you remember, was the inventor of the digital camera and an employee of Kodak when he invented it. Well, in order to embrace the digital revolution, revolution to advance George Eastman's just cause and vision of having, uh, of having photography made, made easier for the masses, Kodak would have to change their entire business model to embrace the digital revolution. And so what happened? Well, George Eastman had died by this point. Stephen Sasson uh, explained the digital camera to the Kodak executives who were shown this technology and they said, we don't think anybody will ever want to look at photos on the screen and we think that people like the paper uh, that photos are printed on. And so they rejected the idea and they kept the status quo and they carried on producing the chemicals and the film and the paper. They abandoned the just cause of George Eastman and instead suppress the technology as long as they could. In describing the situation, Stephen Sasson said, when you're talking to a bunch of corporate guys about 18 or 20 years in future, when none of those guys will be in the company, well, they don't get too excited about it. The executives and Kodak carried on as they did. And they carried on for a while, but the outcome was inevitable. About 10 years after the invention of the digital camera, Nikon introduced a, an SLR camera, a big camera, where you could have the option to attach a digital part to it. And then in 1988, Fuji made the first fully digital camera, and then eventually companies combined to make cameras part of phones. Now Kodak, uh, uh, Kodak uh, held a lot of the original patents and so they made a lot of money from that. But when the patents ran out in 2007, the money ran out. And in 2012, 
Kodak filed for bankruptcy. Kodak had abandoned their just cause. They refused to change. And what was once one of the biggest companies in the world was bankrupt. Now today Kodak exists. It's a specialist company that employs about 6,000 people, when at one point it employed 120,000. Today, they make film and processing, but their entire business model is based on one clientele, professional photographers. The very thing that George Eastman didn't want to happen to his company. If a company or an organization is to survive, then it has to change. Now, the church has changed over the years, but the problem is that we've changed so slowly, and society changes so quickly. That's why we now need to change much more quickly and much more fundamentally, and we need to uh, determinedly advance our just cause. God is not done with the church. The church is the way that God interacts with the world. We are God's hands and feet. There's nothing in scripture that says we have to do it one way. Now, one tiny final point. The message this morning, I realize, is kind of linked with church organization and quite kind of uh, uh, around that. You might be in church for the first time. You might not have been in church for a long time. And you might be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with me? Or you might have just zoned out, and that's perfectly okay. At the heart of Christianity is a message that says that you're loved, that you are worthwhile, that you have gifts and skills, uh, and that you were created by the maker and sustainer of the universe. And you were created to use those gifts and skills. Now, the world is a broken place. The human race is prone to messing stuff up and being a bit selfish and a bit self-centered. You know, that me first kind of thing and everyone else far down the line. And if you expand that thinking, that selfishness to presidents and countries and prime ministers, then you see the problems that we have in our world. And you can see how damaging it can be. But a lot of our selfishness comes from a place of brokenness where we don't feel like we're worth very much. Well, the claim at the heart of Christianity is that God came to earth as a human being called Jesus and somehow through dying on the cross wiped away all of the ways that we mess up, all of the ways that we've mucked up and then calls us in forgiveness to live a new life, a new life of freedom away from that guilt, a new life of generosity because we've been given that new life and a new life away from any thoughts of guilt. And so I wonder this morning if God is prompting you in some way to make an existential flex, a pivot in your life, to change the course of your life, to live a different life, a life like the one that God created you to live, one where you use your gifts and your skills, one where you have the freedom from the past to know that you are loved, that you are gifted, and that you are worthwhile. I wonder if we're created to live that life and if God is telling us, speaking to us to do that. Maybe God is calling us 
to get an infinite mindset and start now. I wonder if God is calling us to pivot, to flex, to change. I'll leave that for you. Happy to talk to anybody about that at the end. Let's pray together. Our loving God, you're a God of love, you're a God of grace, you're a God of forgiveness. You're a God who also calls us not to stay static, but to change, to move, to grow. So as a church, may we be open to your prompting to follow you more deeply and to be better witnesses, to be fuller witnesses to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.